Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, the grace that we celebrate today as we discuss the gospel and what it means to us. We thank you for the grace of grandparents that we also celebrate, Lord, your kindness to us. And we pray that they would be encouraged this morning as they consider uh, that which should be most important to them and that which they can share and, and pass on to their grandkids. Lord, bless this time, may it be for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be here, good to, uh, to, to, to worship with you. This morning, we celebrate Grandparents' Day. Grandparents are a unique blessing, a source of love and wisdom, uh, some free babysitting, of course, but I know my grandparents meant so much to me, and my kids would say the same thing, and so we wanted to have any grandparents who are here this morning stand so that we can recognize you and thank you for the grace that you are in our lives. So if you're a grandparent, could you stand right now, please? Thank you. you. may be seated. We also have a small gift for you. So there's a place in the foyer where you can take a picture with your family and we'll get it back to you with a frame in a couple of weeks. And there's also a book that we think that you will uh, appreciate. So again, thank you for, for coming. A question for the grandparents. Uh, let me ask you this. What are you known for to your grandkids? Uh, is, is it how you spoil them? Is it your famous baked goods? Is it your sense of humor, your gifts? Uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for, for my grandparents again. And of course, we knew them for different things. But one distinguishing factor was their size. Uh, so my, my father is Japanese. My mother is Caucasian from a Scandinavian family. And to put it in perspective, on her side, I'm considered short. And uh, a couple of the ladies uh, are as tall as me or taller. <clears throat> on my father's side, I'm fairly tall. So when we were growing up, we would call our grandparents little grandma and big grandma. Okay, so I'm not sure if you want to be big grandma, but that's, that was her name. That's what we called her. So if my parents said, we're going to grandma's house, that would be the question. Are we going to little grandma or big grandma? So little grandma was about 4'10". But actually, my parents were the ones who started that. And the reason was because uh, my older brother, when he was little, was trying to distinguish between them, apparently not bright enough to use last names. And so he started calling them white grandma and black grandma. <laughs> and my parents had to put an end to that like really quick. And so they came up with little grandma and big grandma, and it worked. But it's one of the many things that we remember them for. So again, grandparents, what are you known for? Well, this morning, we're going to talk about what should be the most important thing about each of us, what we should each be known for, and that's the gospel of Christ. So on one hand, we are celebrating Grandparents' Day, but it's also the morning we introduce a new, uh, our new sermon series, a study through Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you're new to the church, the Bible has different genres of writing, and one of them is what we call epistles or letters. And so we're going to spend the next year or so looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. That's why we call it Galatians. And this works well uh, for a morning like this because Galatians is really a letter about the gospel, the most important truth that anyone can know and embrace. Now understand, the word gospel literally means good news. And typically in Christianity, it's the good news that Jesus loves and rescues sinners. So it's about our Savior and the salvation that he offers. But Galatians not only draws our attention to the gospel of Jesus, the, the greatest good news that uh, the world has ever known, but actually it addresses a problem that each of us is intimately acquainted with, even if we aren't aware of it. 
And that's the danger of false gospels or, or counterfeit gospels. Now, when I say counterfeit gospels, I'm referring to the reality that everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, has their version of the gospel, their version of good news. And like the Christian gospel, their gospel is also about uh, some savior who offers some manner of salvation. And usually it's a version of what will make life right, what will bring hope and happiness, what will offer what we long for, like security or love or prosperity or power or control or the affections and admirations of others. It could be a myriad of things, but it's some aspect of hope, right? The belief in something or someone or something or some things that will make life right. So for example, for some, it's, it's in religion, believing Buddhism or Hinduism or Catholicism will save them and grant them some version of eternal life. But for others, their gospel is more simple. It's something like relationships and people. People are the saviors who offer approval, affection, admiration, acceptance. It's kind of when we want people to, to like us or love us. For others, their gospel is money. Money is a savior. It offers a version of salvation. It's security and identity and pleasure. Often for people, it's just simply good circumstances. Have you ever thought something like that? Like, okay, if I could just get into that certain school or if my kids or grandkids are successful or if I get married or if my health would improve or if I got that promotion or if that problem would go away, then I would be okay. Then I would be happy. Then life would be great. That's a gospel. So understand, we all have our version of the gospel. We all have our good news. And so if you're sitting here and I may not know you and I may not know anything about you, one thing I do know is that you hold to some gospel. There's some good news in your life that you're looking to and you're finding your hope in. Now, why is this important? First, it's because our temptation is to orient our lives around our version of the gospel. We'll seek that which we think is important, that we think will make us happy or fix things, that will offer some version of salvation. So if education or money or family or successes are my gospel, then I'm gonna orient my life around those things. That's, and that's our world, right? It's filled with people living for their own version of the gospel, living for some good news they believe will make their lives right. So your dentist, your best friend, your angry coach of your kid's soccer team, your sweet auntie, they all have their gospels and their lives are oriented around them. Second, if the gospel we believe in is false, then our whole lives are oriented around the wrong things. In other words, false gospels are dangerous gospels. So for example, like I mentioned, for some people, their false gospel is people. And it tells them that if people accept them or approve of them or admire them, then they're gonna be happy. But you see the danger? When people are so concerned of what people think of them, they live enslaved to people's opinions. They, they carry that burden of being worried about their, their, their weight and what they look like, or if, they, if their grandchildren or, or children are successful, if their job carries enough prestige, if they're part of the cool crowd at school, if their performance is enough for their boss, or, how they, or even how they do on the court or the, or the, the field. And it's a sermon into itself, but for many people, they live for people's opinions, even if they don't realize it, and it's truly enslaving. And realize there are so many examples of false gospels. Even something positive like family can become a danger when it becomes the center of our universe rather than Christ. And third, 
If we orient our lives around false, false gospels, then we will miss out on the freedom we find in the true gospel of Jesus. Paul's point in the letter to the Galatians isn't simply to avoid what is wrong and not even just to pursue what is right. He wants us to experience the freedom that's found in the gospel of Christ. As he writes in chapter five, verse one, for freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, Jesus didn't rescue us just to make us really obedient people or really moral people or really religious people. He rescued us to experience the freedom of living as children of the living God. Needless to say, this applies to all of us, but for those of you who are grandparents, do you see the significance of this? First, it should help you consider your own life because it begs you to ask the questions, what is your good news? What would make your life right? What do you hope in? What is your life oriented around? And are they false gospels? I mean, are they truly good news? Do they address the bigger questions of life? Do they offer eternal hope? But not only that, but it should also help you to know better how to walk with and love your grandkids. Because if you think about it, your grandkids are orienting their lives around something. You probably already see it. And if it's the wrong things, it's gonna be devastating. I mean, can you imagine them spending their lives seeking the things that might not truly matter in the end? I mean, it should grieve our hearts that, that we might see life, they might see life as being about how they look or what their friends think of them or some version of worldly success, academic or athletic or otherwise, all the while missing on the true gospel, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the one who loved them and gave himself for them. And so I'm hoping this will be helpful to you even as you think through what your grandkids are orienting their lives around. Now, for those of you who are Christians, you might be tempted to think, well, this is great for those who don't know Jesus, but what does this have to do with me? But understand, as we'll look at more closely in the coming months, Paul actually writes to believers, Christians who are being tempted to pursue false gospels. It's not that they would deny Christ, but wrongly believe that the gospel of Jesus wasn't enough. They were being told that, that you have to, not only did you have to believe in Jesus, but you also had to do uh, other things to, be a really, to really be a Christian, or at the very least, to be a good one. And specifically, they were being told they would have to follow some of the, the religious rituals of the Old Testament to be right with God. And we'll look at that next week as, long, as well as the idea of legalism. But understand, in the case of the gospel, addition is always subtraction. I mean, imagine adding poison to a drink. You technically have more to drink, right? But clearly, addition is subtraction. When we add to the gospel, when we, we say that, that it's Jesus plus something, then we're actually taking away from it, and it becomes something that kind of looks like the gospel, but is no gospel at all. In other words, a compromised gospel becomes a counterfeit gospel. And as we'll see, this is not just like a little miscue. It is dangerous and can be outright devastating. All right, it's embracing lies at the expense of truth. It's pursuing temporary happiness at the cost of lasting joy. It's, it's, giving, it's trading freedom for slavery. The way we've described it at Lighthouses, it's the Jesus plus something kind of life. The idea that we, we know we need Jesus, but we kind of want more for happiness and freedom. So hopefully you see why Galatians is such a worthy study and that Paul is, is battling for the true gospel, the only gospel, the one gospel. And if we join Paul in embracing the true gospel, we'll not only know eternal life, but we'll experience the transformation of our everyday life. 
I like the way Timothy Keller describes Galatians. He says this, in Galatians, Paul will explain to us that the truths of the gospel changes life from top to bottom. That they, they transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. The gospel, the message that we are more wicked than we ever dare believed, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope, creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience, and for love. Now this morning, again, just an introduction, we're gonna consider some big themes of the letter and particularly why this mattered to Paul, the author of the letter. And then over the coming months, we will unfold all of that in more detail. So this morning, we'll look at how in the gospel, we, have, we are set free to live free. In the gospel, we are set free to live through, and that's kind of one of the big themes of the, this letter to the Galatians. So first point, the problem of false gospels. Now, part of the problem for some is that they don't realize how good the gospel is. Like some like even say, well, Christianity is kind of a scam, right? Recently, I had a parenting fail. My, my son went to a retreat and uh, he found out that they had a payphone. So I guess those still exist and he could call home. So he actually brought coins from home to call us during his break, right? And so, you know what happened? I didn't know this. So when I get this random call, what am I thinking? I don't want to hear about how my warranty's expired, right? I don't, I don't want to know that I can make more money if I give you money. So I ignored the call, right? And it ended up, it was my son, right? Worst dad ever, right? That, that's, that's, our, that's our lives. Um, the problem was I was confusing truth and falsehood. I didn't realize what was going to be great. And I was thinking it was something that was wrong. And, and people do that with the gospel. They, they confuse what is real and fake, what is good news and false news. And that's what Paul's considering in this letter. Now, the first word of the letter of Galatians is Paul. It says, Paul, an apostle. He's the author of this letter. And really, we can't truly appreciate this letter without understanding a little bit about his life. Because Paul wasn't born an apostle. He wasn't like living in a Christian family uh, where he heard about Jesus since he was a child. He wasn't some lifelong Christian who followed the natural path of ministry. No, in reality, the great apostle Paul, the, the one who God used uniquely to spread Christianity, who helped start the church as we know it, he spent the first few decades of his life under a false gospel. Now we'll look at his life more closely as we go through the letter because Paul actually tells us a lot of his story in Galatians. But for now, just know that, that, that Paul grew up in the Jewish faith. And really, this should have been this incredible blessing. If you remember, the Jews were God's chosen people, meaning they uniquely experienced his love and his blessing. They were given revelation from God about himself and the world that they lived in. And significantly, they were told that from their nation would one day come a savior who was going to make everything right. And importantly, they were being called to live by faith. And then out of that faith to live for God. In other words, they were supposed to trust God and from that trust to, to love, obey, and worship him. But by Paul's day, though there was a remnant that was living by faith, in reality, much of the nation had confused what it meant to be God's people, often presuming upon it. And they also confused what it meant to live for God. So where they were supposed to, to live by faith and trust in God's love, they began to believe they could earn God's love and earn his acceptance and his approval through, through their obedience and their religious ritual. Does that kind of make sense? So at a very simple level, level, if you ask them, well, how will God accept you and love you? How will you get to heaven? You can imagine them answering by being a good person, by following the rules, by taking part in religious ritual. And understand, this isn't just Judaism. Those same beliefs are at the heart of just about every religion and belief system in the world. 
right? It's the belief that you have to be good enough. You have to follow the rules, you know, do religious ritual, whatever, so that God or some higher power accepts you or blesses you in some way. Right? For a lot of people, they just say something like, well, if there is a God, I feel like I'm a good person, right? The idea being I'm, I'm good enough for God. And with all this is likely the most dangerous part of it all. Israel wasn't looking for a savior because they believed they could be their own savior. And again, this describes our world, ignoring Christ because they don't believe they need Christ. And here's the thing, Paul grew up right in the middle of this and he believed it to the core of his being. His life was about obeying the rules, right? The, the Jewish law and, he, and participating in religious ritual to a degree that we would comfortably call him a religious zealot. And for Paul, this is a good thing. I mean, if you believe that you need to be really good and really religious for God to accept you, then Paul's life is exactly what you would want. In fact, the way he described it, he said, well, if anyone had reason to trust in themselves for salvation, it's me. Right? He writes this in Philippians 3, 4, and 6. He says, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, and other words, confidence in, in, in who I am, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had, a, he had the right lineage. He thought he had the right beliefs. He had the right passion. He had the right actions. He had the right morality. In fact, he's so committed to what he believed that he begins to persecute Christians because he believed Jesus was an imposter. That's what we have described in this letter. We'll look at this passage in a few weeks, but Paul writes in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the, um, the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. So you see what's happening. Paul, most considered Paul a, a superstar, right? Uh, to use a sports analogy, he was, he was the Jewish Messi. He's, he's a prodigy of sorts. And his life revolved around the morality and religion of Judaism, so much so that he made it his life's goal to exterminate Christianity. Okay, so surely, if God's gonna approve of anyone, it's Paul, right? He's done it all. But here's the, the, the real reality. Paul's belief that he could be right with God based on his behavior and adherence to religious ritual is one of the greatest deceptions that our world has ever known. Like I said, it's at the heart of just about every religion other than Christianity. But the reality is we'll never be good enough for, uh, or religious enough to overcome the, the one thing that really threatens our souls, and that's the sinfulness of our own lives. And here's the thing, Paul should have understood this because, uh, understood this as a faithful Jew. I mean, the reason that the nation of Israel had so many rules and rituals wasn't so that they could be good enough for God. It was actually to point out the fact that nobody is good enough for God. Like, you'll never do this. All of us are sinners. That really should be indisputable. We, we've all told lies. We've been angry, at least in our hearts. We've struggled with jealousy and discontentment and worry and lust and selfishness. And because we're all sinners and we've broken God's rules, we're, we're, we're lawbreakers, we deserve punishment. Again, remember, God is a holy God. He's a perfect God, which means he can't just ignore sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be righteous. Now, no amount of good is going to overcome that. Imagine breaking hundreds of laws and then telling the judge, but deep down, I'm a good person. I follow most of the rules. I mean, murderers don't actually break most of the laws, but that doesn't absolve them from what they have done. 
here's the point. All of us are sinners awaiting judgment. We're headed towards eternal punishment. And no amount of good behavior or religious ritual is going to get us out of that. As Paul tells us in this letter, Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works. He's telling the Galatians, don't you get it? No one will be saved by what they do. So do you kind of see the insidious nature of the whole thing? These false gospels promise salvation, and yet they lead to damnation. They promise freedom, and they lead to slavery. In fact, that's one of the big themes of this letter, that the slavery of sin and false gospels versus the freedom that we find in Christ. Now consider Paul's life for a moment. Imagine your whole life was absolutely committed to some ideal, some belief, some version of good news, and you believed it would save you. It would, it would make your life right, that God would accept you and love you. Imagine you believed that it would lead to others, accept, others accepting you, even admiring you. Imagine it was at the deepest level of faith and trust and hope, like absolutely convinced 100% it's real. Imagine everything's wrapped up in this and then imagine that it was such a deeply held belief that you'd be willing to kill for it. And then imagine at some point you realize it's all been a lie. As Paul wrote, by works of law, no one will be justified. I mean, what does that do to you? Can you picture Paul later on rehearsing over and over in his mind the heinous things that he had done in defense of a lie? And it's not just any lie, it's the lie. It's the lie that is more dangerous than just about any other lie because it's a lie that leads to hell itself. So imagine Paul, I mean, he, when he finally understood things with some clarity, I mean, he, he was thinking he was going to win the, you know, the competition of life and he finds out that he's on this hell-bound race. He was waiting to be commended and he finds out he's going to be condemned. He thought that he could save himself and then he finds out that he's a sinner like everyone else. And then he realizes that the God of this world is willing to save him. And this makes sense of Paul writes so uh, to the Galatians so passionately. When you read this letter, you feel it. There's an intensity to this letter because false gospels were threatening the people that he loved. And that's what Galatians is about. It's Paul fighting for the true gospel because he knew just how devastating uh, it was to, to follow a false gospel. Now we'll look at the true gospel in a second, but hopefully you see how relevant this is for our lives because like Paul, we are in danger of living for a lie, of being committed to counterfeit gospels. It's, it's happening all around us. I mean, people passionately, even zealously living for what they believe will make their life right. Living for money, or education, or the success of their kids, or the next promotion, or some political party, or athletic achievement, not realizing that like the course Paul was on, the race would not end with a victory, no matter what happened, but, the deepest, but in the deepest of defeats. And, and honestly, it, it's not easy to see because false gospels are so convincing. And in other words, none of you are sitting here thinking, I'm gonna pursue a life of crime and let's see how that turns out. Well, hopefully none of you are. If you are, come talk to our counseling pastor. No, we're, we're seeking things like relational happiness and occupational success and financial security. Surely those things are good, right? But what we have to realize is that while our false gospels promise everything, in reality, they will always lead to brokenness and loss. And ultimately, if we follow them to the end, they will lead to hell itself. 
And so while counterfeit gospels promise freedom, as Galatians points out over and over, they actually lead to enslavement. To use our previous example, when people and relationships are our savior, we become kind of enslaved to them. And if I, if I have to make people happy, if I have to impress them with my successes, if I have to draw their admiration through my appearance, if I have to seek acceptance through my actions, that's a heavy weight to bear. So, that's why though we, we might be tempted to see the issues of the letter to the Galatians as something that took place like 2000 years ago, having nothing to do with us, we have to realize that it, it could not be more applicable to our lives now because we will always be in danger of looking to things other than Christ for our hope and our help. So what about you? If you don't know Christ, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. We're thankful that you might consider the claims of Christ, but what are you looking to? What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? Maybe there's some religious commitment. It's, it's Buddhism, it's Roman Catholicism, it's something else. And you're convinced that, that it'll get you right with God. It'll offer salvation or something. Or maybe you just believe, well, I'm a good person. So if there is a God, I'll be okay. Maybe you believe there is no God. And so you just get to live for whatever makes you happy. Or maybe it's the belief that true happiness is in success or relationships or pleasure. Whatever it is, understand these are false gospels, false confidences, and eventually they will always fail you. We need the true good news. We need the savior to look to for our help and hope. But even if you know Christ, what are, where are you placing your hope? What are you looking to? Maybe you struggle to really appreciate the grace of the gospel. Feeling like, okay, God may love me technically. I just don't know if he really likes me. Maybe you feel the weight of your sin on your shoulders. Like, like this last week was just a full week of spiritual failure. And then you have to come into church and try to sing praises to God. And so you feel like you're not enough for Jesus. Or maybe you're suffering in some way. And so though you know God is supposed to be near, he feels distant and almost disinterested. And all this makes you feel like I just got to try harder. I got, I got to follow the rules more. I got to not sin so much. I got to uh, <clears throat> serve better and, and pray more. Then God will really be happy with me. Or maybe while you trust in Jesus, it still seems like he falls a little short of offering what you desire. Like I mentioned, you kind of live that Jesus plus something kind of life. I want Jesus, but I want other things as well. Like you want to go to heaven when you die, that seems a lot better than hell. But right now you want your own version of salvation. Maybe it's just better circumstances, a new relationship, some manner of success. And you think if I have those, then I'm really going to be happy. That's the life, Jesus plus something. But again, a compromised gospel becomes a counterfeit gospel because it leads you away from the true gospel. Or even this, do you have false gospels for your children or your grandchildren? Are you telling them that education is the key to life or that a right relationship or some aspect of success, that's what they really need? Again, any gospel that leads away from the true gospel is a dangerous gospel. All that to say, I hope you see the problem of false gospels. They are so dangerous, so deceptive, and yet many of us live enslaved to them every day. Point number two is the power of the true gospel. The power of the true gospel. Have you ever thought, is that True, of course you have, right? Maybe you read something on the internet. Maybe, you, you, maybe a story someone is telling or, or maybe you've watched one of those movies where it says based on real events and you're watching, you're thinking, is it true? 
One of my kids and I were driving recently and we saw a license plate on a sports car that said, ugly guy. And I just, is it true? I mean, that was my first, because I want to know. Because like, is he being ironic and he's really a supermodel or is he being humble? Like I just, he doesn't realize how great looking he is or is he leaning into reality? He's just comfortable with who, how he looks. Now, unfortunately it was a sports car. So the mystery remains, I couldn't catch up with him. Um, but it was in Torrance. So if you see it, please tell me. I want, the curiosity is killing me. Now, whenever I tell a story about this, I am sure that person is here visiting. So you need Jesus. I don't know how you, no, despite how you look, ugly or not, you need Jesus. So uh, come talk with me. When it comes to the gospels in our lives, we have to ask that question. Is it true? Because only a true gospel can be a saving gospel. Well, in this letter Paul's writing, he, he's passionately defending the true gospel, the only gospel, because again, only uh, the gospel of Jesus saves us. Like I said, Paul was living out a false gospel. He, he believed in his religious zealousness would make him right before God. So he's persecuting the church. He's even seeking Christians to throw into prison or even worse. But in love, God didn't give up on Paul or, or condemn Paul or punish Paul. Instead, he chooses to save Paul. Paul has what we famously call the Damascus Road experience. He's on his way to Damascus, ready to persecute more Christians, try to destroy the church, and he's visited by Jesus himself. We won't dive in too deeply into the story, but Paul is given faith and his blind eyes finally see who Jesus is and he embraces him as his true savior. Not only that, but at that time he's commissioned as an apostle to minister on behalf of Christ, to, to share the truths of salvation through Jesus. And from that moment on, the gospel becomes precious to Paul. Not only believing it, treasuring it, but defending it with his very life. And it makes sense because Paul understood finally that his life didn't deserve salvation. It deserved damnation. He didn't deserve commendation. He deserved condemnation. So imagine that when, when all of a sudden with absolute clarity, you realize you deserve judgment and yet Jesus forgives you, saves you, loves you. It changes everything. I mean, when you know you should go to hell and you're given heaven, your world is completely different. Now, there's a lot we could discuss here, but, um, but the two things I want to focus on was the, the good news that, that the gospel saves us and it frees us. So first, the gospel saves us. Again, remember, Paul believes that, that he could save himself, and then he's convinced all of a sudden that Jesus is the only one that saves. But how? How does Jesus save us from our sins? By going to the cross and suffering the punishment we deserve. In Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Does it make sense? So while I deserve punishment, Jesus was willing to take the punishment I deserve on my behalf. Instead of me being cursed, he was cursed. He suffered hell so I could experience heaven. We call this grace. Grace being an absolute free gift of God, nothing we deserve, nothing we earn. And what this means is that the forgiveness of sins and salvation are 100% accomplished by Jesus. We have no role in, it, in saving ourselves. And hopefully this makes sense then of why any belief system that promotes our works, our, our morality, or our religiosity for salvation is a false gospel. Because they really tear at the fabric of grace, the true gospel. Maybe think of it this way. If salvation is completely by grace, 
so it's a free gift, then any type of earning nullifies grace, but I need grace to be saved. I mean, if I gave you a gift and then charged you for it, is it a gift? It's not a gift. It would be something you purchased. We need grace to be saved, and so the moment I try to earn it or deserve it, it ceases to be grace, and my efforts will always fall short. Imagine you're trying to cross this huge chasm, and there's two bridges. One comes at a cost, a a bajillion dollars. I know it's not a real number, and that's the point. The other is a free gift if you're willing to accept it. So if you decide, even though you're living in poverty, that you're going to try to get on that pain bridge, and you hope your few cents will get you across, what are you doing? You're dooming yourself to never getting across the chasm. You have a choice. You accept grace or you never get across. And that's why there's only one true gospel. And then there's the rest, which are all false gospels. Any supposed good news that relies on our efforts is doomed to fail because it nullifies grace. And again, like I said, it's not just Judaism. Think about every religion in the world, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Think about the cults, Mormonism, Jehovah Jehovah Witness. Think of something like Roman Catholicism and things like Confession and Hail Marys. What do they all have in common? To some degree, you need to save yourself. You need to be good enough or religious enough. You need to participate in enough rituals, go to enough services, say the right prayers. The hope being, if you do it, then maybe you'll get saved. And yet all of them are doomed to fail because none of them looks truly to grace. None of them is willing to rely only upon the gift that Jesus offers. So salvation is 100% Jesus, then what do we do? We respond in faith. We simply trust in Jesus as our savior. As Paul writes in chapter two, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. In other words, it's not by us doing the works, doing the things, doing the right things. It's through our faith in Jesus. So though I can never be enough, Jesus was good enough on my behalf. And and what I need to do then is to turn from my sin and the false gospels of my life and trust in him. If I have faith in him, I experience that free gift of grace. I cross the chasm, not because I deserve to, not because I'm so rich, but because God is so loving. In other words, I don't have to be my own savior and I don't have to look to the false saviors of the world. I simply trust in Jesus, the true savior. And can you imagine how precious of a truth this was for Paul's life? I mean, with the life he lived, not just under a false gospel for for decades, but, but as persecutions of Christians, being a murderer even, and then to, to believe that God would save me. Like I did all that. Like the one thing I've really earned is hell and God sent Jesus to save me. It becomes the anchor in his life. If, we don't, if you don't know Jesus, you can hope that your false gospel save you, but realize there is only one way to be saved. It's by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you have questions, I encourage you to, to talk to whoever brought you or you can talk with one of the pastors, with me. We would love to talk with you about these things. Now that's enough to celebrate, but as we've so often talked about here at Lighthouse, the gospel isn't just for eternal life, but everyday life. And in this, we're reminded that the gospel doesn't just save us, but the gospel frees us. And that's be in your notes. Now we're, we're free for a couple of reasons. First, we're free because we're forgiven. Again, we'll talk about this more in weeks to come. 
but false gospels are enslaving. And we see this in the, the false religions of the world. If you're not saved by grace, then life has to become this relentless pursuit of trying to be good enough. And that is such a burden to bear. Imagine trying to be good enough to get to heaven, trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. Always believing, I need, to, I need to be better. I need to act better. I need to think better. I need to trust better. I need to do more. There's different ways we could describe other belief systems, but one is this, they are exhausting. It is constantly the quest to do more and be better. But the gospel of Jesus frees us of this. And it doesn't mean it doesn't matter how we live our life, but the order is everything. So rather than live for God so that I'll be loved by God, again, that's exhausting. It's when we know we're loved by God, it leads us to trying to live for God, right? It leads to worship and thankfulness and things like that. And that's what we'll discuss as we go through our letter. Again, we are free because we're forgiven. The gospel frees us from that rat race of trying to constantly do more. As Galatians 5.1 said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Experience the freedom in Christ. Second, we're free because we're adopted and loved. Beyond the most overtly religious elements, um, just living for false saviors is, is tiring. For example, we keep coming back to this, but mainly because it's so prevalent. But if I live for people's approval and their affirmation and admiration, that's so tiring. I mean, think about it. If I'm living to impress others, or I feel like I need to deserve their affection, or if I need to, I need to do certain things for them to like me, that is so exhausting. And along with that, most of us know the pain uh, of rejection. We've experienced broken relationships. We know what it feels like when we fall short of what others want of us. And again, all that is exhausting and it's enslaving. But the gospel frees us of that because it brings us into a right relationship with the God of the universe. In other words, God isn't some distant, disinterested deity, right? Galatians describes him as our heavenly father. Galatians 4, 5, it says, we were adopted as sons. And then verses six through seven, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you get that? No longer a slave, but a son. A slave versus a son or daughter could not be more different. Depending on your situation, being a son or daughter could be a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe your family dynamics were not great or even abusive. But try to imagine being a slave, being owned, living a life of bondage and suffering and futility and hopelessness, and then being adopted by a king, given the rights of royalty, knowing you are looked out for by the one who has absolute power. More intimately, think about for the first time ever, maybe knowing you're loved. That when someone cares for you that deeply, your life would be so different. And this is us. We are sinners and we are rebels and we are slaves. We are alone and helpless and hopeless. We are condemned and facing eternal judgment. <clears throat> and then we are saved and we're adopted into God's family. He is our heavenly father and he loves us and walks with us. I think often the world abhors God because they don't understand who he is. Sometimes he's like some uninvolved higher power or sometimes they'll say things like God is, the Bible is a sadistic tyrant or they will picture him as some rule maker or taskmaster. And yet the picture we're given in scripture is a father who loves us. And just that idea of love is so powerful if we really slow down and take it in. The God of the universe loves his children. 
In Galatians 2.20, Paul famously writes, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's life has been completely changed, right? He says, I'm a new creation. Why? He trusts that God loves him. Again, remember before, Paul had lived life trying to earn that love, trying to be obedient and follow religious rule and be zealous for the faith. And, and it was never enough. He, he wanted to be loved. He was trying to be loved. And now finally through Christ, he knows he's loved. And when you know as a Christian, you're loved by God, it changes everything. It means we can trust that God will forgive us of all our sins, every single one of them. It means that he'll never give up on us because his love is unrelenting. It even means that he'll use difficulties in our life for our good. So what does that freedom look like? It is the transformed life. Again, we'll, we'll take a closer look at this as we go, but the gospel transforms us. We don't earn God's love, but knowing that we're loved changes everything. Like one way it's described in Galatians 5 is it's the fruit of the spirit. The, the Christian life as we're filled by the Holy Spirit leads to the kind of life that we should want. Galatians 5, 22, 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Imagine that's your life. I think, I mean, I think all of us wish we could love better or our new deeper joy and deeper peace or could be more patient and kind. And that's what the gospel has the power to do in us. And understand that is so freeing because on the other hand, most of us know the misery of being unkind and impatient, of struggling to experience peace and joy. And yet that's what happens when we pursue our false gospels. Again, love and even just the ability to love is so powerful as we've often discussed, loving people are truly happy people because hate, anger, frustration, and patience, they are the pictures of the misery we feel. But to love well, especially difficult people, even our enemies, it gives us the ability to be at rest even when our circumstances say otherwise. And again, Paul is such a good case study of this. If you read about him before his conversion in the book of Acts, it says he was, he was causing havoc. He was ravaging the churches. He was doing evil. It says, quote, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then he experiences grace. He was saved. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew he was loved. And what happens? He learns to love. So how can we be like Paul and be passionate about the true gospel? A few applications. I won't go into these, but just a few ideas. Be committed to the prior to the gospel. May it be the most important thing. Be committed to being transformed by the gospel. Be changed by Christ. And lastly, be committed to sharing the gospel. For those of you who are grandparents, can I encourage you to do more than just let your kids, your grandkids know that you're Christians if you are? Tell them that the gospel matters, that it's everything. All right, let me close with this. If you ask my grandparents, I'm sorry, if you ask my brothers, I know we would say that we were blessed by all our grandparents. We had a good relationship with all of them. And, and there's different things we remember about each of them. Like one was a pilot and it was so cool because he would take us to go look at planes and we get to go on these planes and things like that. As a kid, that's amazing. One of our grand, uh, grandfathers fought in World War II and for the 442nd. Well, you know, as a kid, when you're reading that story, it's so amazing. But I think though we loved all our grandparents, I think each of us would, would say that we really revered my father's mother. That's little grandmother, in case you're keeping notes. And that's because what was most important to her they came out and everything she did was her faith. Right? It's what she was known for. The way that she prayed, the way that she served at church, 
uh, it just stood out to us. I mean, all of us had this one memory of, or um, it was often, but it was, we'd see my grandfather pushing her in a wheelchair to go serve in some capacity. It was the way she shared her testimony. Even at a young age, we realized that something was different. I remember organizing a time for our college group where we invited my grandmother in to come and share her testimony. And so try to picture this because those are my peers at a time when I'm still really worried about looking cool and fitting in and I want them to hear from my grandmother. That's the kind of lady she was. Truly extraordinary and yet not extraordinary by any means that we would normally measure that by. She loved to spoil us, but she didn't have a lot of money. So there was no fancy trips. She couldn't help with college or things like that. Sometimes she would take us to McDonald's and that was really special for us. She wasn't a powerful speaker. Her testimony was simple and, and only had power because it mentioned Jesus. She never accomplished much in life, but it didn't matter because her testimony was all about how much Jesus did. And again, my brothers and I, we really revere her. We speak of her in hallowed terms because God used her to help bring us to faith and to deepen our faith and, and to that we are indebted. Grandparents, at the very beginning, I asked you, what are you known for to your grandkids? Like, what do you think your grandkids think matters to you? Can I encourage you to, to make the gospel the most important thing? May it be what they know you for. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy for the opportunity we have, Lord, to come together and to begin the study of this letter to the Galatians. And I pray, Lord, that as over this upcoming year, as we think through it and, and read and, and meditate on the Lord, that it will help us to see the priority of the gospel, but also how the gospel changes us in every single way. We thank you for the grandparents. And again, I pray that the grandparents here would be known for the gospel. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.